0: All right, so let's turn once again back to where we just read from the scriptures to Revelation chapter number one. And I want to draw your attention for our introduction to uh, our study tonight to verse uh, number five. Uh, notice with me, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Our subject this evening is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Uh, You'll notice here that this is a, a particular account we have specifically describing Jesus Christ. He is described as being the faithful witness. Uh, We know that his witness is a witness that is from all eternity, a witness to all of the counsels of God. Uh, He has been that faithful witness and will continue to be the faithful witness. He's a witness not only of the eternal uh, counsels of God, uh, but he is that faithful witness of the revealed will of God. So as we see the scriptures and we see the word, uh, we know that our faithful witness is in Jesus Christ himself. Uh, We can depend upon the testimony of Jesus Christ as our faithful witness. Uh, His testimony is safe to depend upon. Uh, A faithful witness is one who is consistent, of course, but also is always truthful, is always honest. We can certainly depend upon his testimony. Uh, Someone who is described as a faithful witness, and especially with Christ, who cannot sin, who cannot lie, as a faithful witness, Jesus Christ cannot deceive us. Uh, He will never lead us astray. Christ will never lead us uh, a path that is not correct or proper. Uh, But we also know that uh, not only is he the faithful witness, verse 5 tells us, but he is also the first begotten of the dead. Uh, He is the only one uh, who raised himself from the dead by his own power, and by that very same power uh, will one day raise up his people uh, to everlasting life. Uh, And then we see the beauty of this faithful witness. He has washed us. He has washed us from our sins. Notice this, in his own blood. And by doing that, he has, in fact, has given us eternal life. So we see Christ, and we see him as this faithful witness, and we'll expound a bit more on that verse when we get to it. But I wanna go again, as we mentioned, that we would go through this in a verse by verse uh, basis. And so we covered verses one and two last week, learning uh, that really the entire book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Of course, we do believe and we do uh, confirm and affirm um, that the book of Revelation is prophetic. Uh, There are prophecies. Uh, There are things that are still yet to come. Uh, but we also realize that the revelation of Jesus Christ is the purpose of the book. It is where John, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is leading us. And that's where we should keep our mind and our, our eyes should be turned to Christ. And I made mention to you last week that really um, John is announcing uh, not only this revelation, he's announcing who it came from. Uh, why it must come, and he says that these things must shortly come to pass. And these things have been confirmed, uh, which is where Christ, as his faithful witness, also comes in. Part of the confirmation of these things, which must shortly come to pass, is the reality that Jesus Christ is the faithful testimony of these things. He is the faithful witness that the eternal counsels of God are, in fact, coming to fruition. But I mentioned to you that John really as one of the apostles um, is in these opening verses is giving us somewhat of a what we would refer to as an apostolic blessing and a benediction and that's really what verse 3 and verse 4 is really about so before we get to uh, really verse 5 and 6 let's look at verse 3 and this first heading which is the apostolic blessing or John's blessing upon all who read, hear, and keep the words of the prophecy. Notice it, the Bible says in verse 3 that blessed is he that readeth. Now he doesn't stop there and say blessed is he that just reads the words, but rather he who reads and hears the words of the prophecy. So he adds one more level to this. He said it is, it is a blessed man who reads the The words of the prophecy, but also hears the words. But he takes it even one step further. He says, and keeps these things which are written. So we see it. He reads it, he hears it, and he keeps it. Of course, the keeping of it refers to our obedience. So in other words, the book of Revelation is not given to us just to simply read, not just simply to read and hear, but to read, hear, and And keep so all of these things are very important Uh, the book of Revelation like the rest of the Word of God is a passage a portion of Scripture that should be read not only publicly but privately in other words we should be reading the book. We should be reading the book of Revelation. It should be a part of the scriptures that are read. He says very clearly, John, in the inspiration of the Spirit, says there is a blessing pronounced to people who are readers and hearers and also keepers of it. This book primarily deals with, and you'll notice what he says, primarily deals with those things which are written... Right? These things which are written therein for the time is at hand. This connects us back to verse 1 where it says it's primarily the things which must shortly come to pass. So primarily the book of Revelation is a book about the things that are still to come. However, we do know there are some prophecies and there are some scriptures, uh, which as we get through this study and get deeper and deeper into the book of Revelation, uh, we find out that uh, there are things that we'll have to examine and say, is this something from the past? Is this something from the future? But primarily, it is those words that are prophetic about the things which must shortly come to pass. To keep those things in in which are written therein, um, is of course to be desiring to obey, but it also means to keep it in memory. Uh, this book, like the rest of Scripture, should not just be something we just peruse over and we just simply take it and say, I've read this. We should keep it in our memory. We should keep it in our mind. I mentioned last week that the book of Revelation is a very, can be a very intimidating book. It can be intimidating for uh, not just uh, preachers, but people alike in general who who approach it, but it's meant to be read and it's meant to be heard and it's meant to be kept in memory. And that's what John means by this. Uh, Keep those things. Uh, We really should find great comfort from the book of Revelation. Again, there are curses pronounced. There are There is judgment that's poured out. There is God's wrath being poured out. But for the child of God, these are not fearful things. The book of Revelation is a book that ought to bring us comfort. We we keep these things in mind because we live our life by a practical application. We live our life in view of the blessings that are contained in this book. So when I view life, I view life through the through the lens of the Scriptures. If I view life through the lens of humanity and through what the world relies on, I am not going to find comfort in that, folks. I'm not going to find comfort in what the world provides, but I will find comfort if I'm in Christ. The book of Revelation will be a book that will bring me comfort. And even though it does refer to times when the suffering of the church will be at the forefront. There's no question the book of Revelation tells us about suffering. There's no question it tells us about times when things are not going to be so easy, humanly speaking. But the people of God can take comfort in knowing that this he is blessed who reads and hears and keeps. And then notice the last phrase of verse 3, for the time is at hand. Now he doesn't just mean the immediate moment there, but John was writing... And he was right at the time when he said the time is at hand. This is a reference to a season. The season is at hand. The accomplishment of these prophetic things, it's on the doorstep. It is coming, and it is, it is, it is, it is very, very close. It is at hand. Not something that's in the past, but something that is going to begin Uh, Folks, I think it's safe to say that even when John wrote this, he was writing it with the the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, that these things are not far off. Now, if John was writing that on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that these things are not far off, how much closer are they today? And that really gets us thinking, thinking, doesn't it? I love what Matthew Henry said about uh, the particular about this verse, and it, this is a bit lengthy, but I was I was really encouraged by this. He said it is a blessed privilege to enjoy the oracles of God. This was one of the principal advantages the Jews had above the Gentiles. It is a blessed thing to study the Scriptures. Those are well-employed who search the Scriptures. It is a privilege not only to read the Scriptures ourselves, but to hear them read by others who are qualified to give us the sense of what they, re- what they read and to lead us into an understanding of them. It is not sufficient to our blessedness that we read and hear the Scriptures, but we must keep the things that are written. We must keep them in our memories, in our minds, in our affections, and in practice and we shall be blessed in the deed. The nearer we come to the accomplishment of the Scriptures, the greater regard we give to them. The time is at hand, and we should be so much the more attentive as we see the day approaching. It is a blessed privilege to have the Scriptures and to study them. Studying the Word of God should not be tedious. It should not be drudgery. It should not be something that is... Uh, something that we do not look forward to. It is a blessing. And this is the blessing that that John is pronouncing. He says, those who read, hear, and keep will, in fact, be blessed. And in verse 4, it really, John gives what will give the heading, the apostolic benediction is pronounced, and this will be very important as we move forward, particularly to the seven Asian Churches. Notice what it says in verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. There is a pointed intent to what John is writing here. These words and this letter primarily being addressed to the seven churches which are in Asia. And here's the benediction that's pronounced upon them. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. It is pronounced especially to these seven churches of Asia. Now, we know what these seven churches are by looking at verse 11 of chapter 1. And you'll notice he says at the end of verse 11, it says, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it. Send what? Send these letters, what you write in the book, to the seven churches which are in Asia: unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia. And unto Laodicea. Now we're going to get to and I, I did this, I think maybe the first or second year I was here we had a series on the letters to the seven churches, and there was an entire sermon series on those letters. Well, we're going to cover those again. And when we get to these chapters, there is individual instructions being given to these seven churches. So we see that it's very, very directed as to where these letters are to be sent. And so they are distinct messages that are being sent to each one of these churches in the chapters that follow. Now, there is a lot of different viewpoints on this as to why was John uh, so... Uh, intent on those churches. There are some who take the simple position. Now again, I'm not necessarily telling you which one of these is the one I am completely settled on. There are some that take the position that John just simply wrote to these particular churches because those were the ones closest to him by location. He was on the Isle of Patmos, and those seven churches were the closest to him. That's kind of the general idea that some uh, commentators and some preachers of old have taken. Uh, There are others who take the position that the reason that these seven churches were written to is that John somehow was specifically caring for these churches before he was banished to the Isle of Patmos, that he had something to do uh, with these churches along with any other apostles who may have been living at the time. But what we do know for sure is is that the inspired scripture said that that's where these letters were to go. These seven churches. These seven churches in Asia. They're familiar churches to us. We know a little bit about them. Uh, We know a little bit about the church of Laodicea. If we've studied that, we know that uh, that's the one that the Lord does not have very kind things to say. And then we learn about the church at Philadelphia, which seems to be that small and mighty church. And God seems to have many good things to say about that church. But it is specific about what's happening here. Well, what is the benediction? Uh, Very familiar phrases. Grace be unto you and peace. This is the benediction or the blessing that is being pronounced on the faithful in these churches. Grace and peace. Grace, we understand, is the goodwill of God. The goodwill of God towards not only those churches, but the goodwill that's, that is uh, towards us. Uh, if we have been recipients of God's grace, uh, we know that that's God's goodwill. Uh, we know that good, God's grace is good. And so he pronounces that grace be unto these churches and peace. Folks, where does real peace come from? If I was to ask you, if you're peaceful tonight, why are you peaceful? Uh, Some people will respond by saying, well, I'm, I'm at peace because things are calm in my life. Real peace does not come from the circumstances. Real peace comes from knowing and being familiar with the grace of God. That's where real peace comes from. I am never going to be peaceful in this world because the world is always going to be pushing against that peace. Uh, Folks just just try to find peace somewhere in the world today and you will be hard pressed to find it. Now you might find some temporary reprieve, you might find a temporary solace, solace, but you're not going to find real eternal everlasting peace. This is the type of peace that John was talking about. Peace that understands and has gives evidence of the assurance of grace. If I'm at peace, it's because I have the assurance of God's grace. It's been said that there can be no true peace where there's not true grace. So you will never have true peace in your heart unless you have God's true grace. Those two things go hand in hand. You'll never find a person at peace who does not have true grace. So wherever grace goes, Peace will be sure to follow. So he announces this blessing. He tells us where it's to go. And then he announces where it's coming from. Now remember, this is not John's blessing. This is not John's benediction. This is God's blessing and God's benediction. And that's what John clarifies here. In verse number four, when he says, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. This is where the blessing comes from. It comes from God. He who is, which was, and which is to come. This is a reference to the entirety of the Trinity. This is really an act of, or an object rather, that we ought to look at and say, this is a phrase of adoration. This blessing, this benediction, is coming from the very God of grace. From him which is, which was, and which is to come. Only God is the proper object of our worship. And John, really what's happening here in verse 4, and really verses 5 and 6, is John is beginning to give us what we might refer to as a doxology of praise. It's very similar to what what happened to the Apostle Paul. As I was reading today, I, I thought about Paul's many doxologies in the book of Ephesians, where suddenly he breaks out into what appears to be just an aspect of praise, and you'll see that that's really what begins to happen here, where John begins to think upon, here's this Jesus, this faithful witness, who has pronounced through God the blessing and the benediction. You'll notice that the which is, is really truly a reference made to God the Father. And it is the first person we of the Trinity. Uh, God who is and, and was and which is to come. This is a reference to Jehovah God. This is a reference to God in the Trinity. This is that same eternal, unchangeable God. It's, it, it harkens back our minds to even thinking about the immutability of Jesus Christ we've been dealing with on Sunday mornings. This God is the same the same God which is, which was, and which is to come. This speaks of the unchangeableness of this God. But then we see this phrase, and from the seven spirits which are before His throne. Now, this seven spirits, if we if we look at this and think about this, and we'll see this from Scripture, who the what these seven spirits are. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So, really, what you have in in that phrase, from Him which is, which was, and which was to come, is a reference to the Father. The seven spirits which are before His throne is a reference to the Holy Spirit, which is called the seven spirits. Now it's not so much about the number seven, or seven in number, or in nature, but gives evidence of the infinite perfect Spirit of God. The number seven is the number of perfection. And so we actually get an answer to this about what these, who these seven spirits or what the seven spirits are by looking to other scriptures. So let's do that. Look at Revelation 3 verse 1, and we'll start to see these references to the seven spirits of God, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So Revelation 3 verse 1, this is part of the letter written to the church in Sardis. It says "And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and thou and art dead. There's a reference to those seven spirits. Uh, this, is, this is a reference to the graces and the manifold graces of the Holy Spirit of God. So we have God the Father. And now the Spirit being mentioned as part of this benediction and part of this blessing. Turn over to Revelation 4, verse number 5. We'll see another reference for the seven spirits of God. And it says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, seven spirits. Making, references, making reference to the Holy Spirit himself. And then Revelation 5, verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth." So again, we see the seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit. It notices, it says that the Spirit is before the throne, and the, all things are governed by the Spirit of God. And so that's what we see as part of the references that are being made. So God the Father, God the Son, and then verse 5 deals primarily with or, uh, I'm sorry, God the Father, God the Spirit, and then thirdly is God the Son, which is mentioned in verse number five. And our third heading, which is the apostolic testimony of the person of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, we are, we are accustomed to saying God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, but you notice what happened here it says God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. Which is why I just had that faux pas just a minute ago and I said it myself. We're so used to saying it that way. And this reference now is Christ is being mentioned after the Spirit. I believe what John is doing here is now he's enlarging upon the person of Christ as being the embodiment of who God is. So we have the Father and the Spirit, and it's in Christ... That we see the embodiment of God. God manifested in the flesh is whom? Jesus Christ. Who Who was seen dwelling on this earth? Jesus Christ. Who will we see again in this form? Jesus Christ. So we see this very particular account that we have here of Christ. And it's an express mention of Christ because he is the one who is the obtainer of our redemption. He is our mediator, and it is to whom the Father has committed all power, especially with regard to the church. And he's called that faithful witness. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, makes reference to this faithful witness in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, if you'd like to turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. And again, notice that Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, he gives an example of Christ's faithfulness. He says, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession... In other words, he was a faithful witness even as he stood before Pontius Pilate uh, as the earthly judge at that moment. This is that express mention that even Paul says Christ is a true and a faithful witness. He witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate. In John chapter number 8, we see Jesus himself uh, bearing record of himself. This is a, an interesting portion of scripture, but John chapter 8, he's giving a testimony of himself. John 8 verses 13 and 14. Again, it's, it's fascinating to me uh, that when we see John make reference to Jesus Christ as his faithful witness, and then we see that Jesus himself even called himself a faithful witness. John eight verse 13, the Pharisees, therefore, said unto him, "Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true." Now you notice what the Pharisees were accusing him of. They were accusing Jesus of not being a faithful witness, not bearing a truthful record. And Jesus responds to that because it is false. He says, rather, Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, and yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whether I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come and whether I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Now, of course, as was the uh, pattern of the Pharisees, they don't take that and accept the Lord's testimony as being a faithful witness. They just raise more questions. And here's what they say. Then said they unto him, where is thy father? Jesus answered, ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, you should have known my father also. Jesus pretty much undoes their entirety of their person by acknowledging that they don't even know the Father. And so Jesus, as the faithful witness, witnessed not only a good confession before Pontius Pilate, he bore a truthful record of himself. I want to show you one more account of this, John 18, verse 37. Uh, Jesus standing before Pilate uh, Pilate therefore says unto him, verse 37, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Jesus is a faithful witness because he is the truth. And, folks, it's really the truth is what we all desire. And he says himself that if you are of the truth, then you hear his voice. We believe Jesus Christ's own testimony. I believe him to be the faithful witness. I hear his voice because I am of him. I am his, he is mine. He is the faithful witness. And back in our text, he also, John makes mention, not only is he this faithful witness, but he is also the first begotten of the dead. The very one who rose from the dead. The one who had the ability to not only take life, but to bring life again. Of course, we see Jesus uh, give account of that in John chapter number 10, verse 18, when he said, No man taketh it from me with regard to his life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Uh, this first begotten of the dead, he he has the this power. He says, "I have the power to lay down my life, and I have the power to take it up again." And that's exactly what he did. Uh, Acts thirteen verse thirty four. These are all uh, passages, of course, with uh, the full uh, context. Uh, Acts thirteen thirty four, and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Uh, No more return to corruption. He is not going to die again. He's not going to come and bleed on a cross and suffer uh, and go through that uh, horrific uh, journey to the cross. He's done it once for all. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept, or the first begotten, the first one who rose from the dead by his own power. Uh, Jesus Christ is that one. Not only is he the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Now these are references that the book of Revelation makes about Jesus, this prince of the kings of the earth. I go to Revelation 17 and look at verse 14. We we often hear this term that we use, king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, Well, here is where that comes from. That's not just a Christian cliche, uh, that's actually scripture. I hope that you knew that. Revelation 17, 14, it says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Notice the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 19, verse 16. Again, we see this made mention again says, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So we see that these, uh, his glory uh, is, is beyond what we can even think or imagine. Uh, his kingship, his lordship is above what we could even think or imagine. If you go back to 1 Timothy 6, again, back to Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, Paul gives a stirring uh, directive uh, to Timothy regarding uh, this kingship uh, to Timothy. And uh, These are very, very important words. Uh, look again at 1 Timothy 6.15. It says, "...which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings." and the Lord of lords. Uh, Really what Paul was telling Timothy is that at the appointed hour, at the appointed time, God will reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is that faithful witness, but he's also the first begotten, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then really what I think, I think really begins to accelerate the doxology here. John makes mention unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us. Notice the emphasis on the word us. It is He who loved us, He who washed us, He who has made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's a doxology. Directly related to the fact that it is Christ, the faithful witness, who loved us. Folks, do you really know what it is to be loved by Christ? What it is to be loved by God? And that He pursued us. He pursued us in His eternal, everlasting love. It was not us that pursued after Him. It was He who pursued us and arrested us, apprehended us. But He didn't just apprehend us just for the sake of apprehending. Notice what it says. He loved us and He washed us. This is the beauty of the cleansing from sin. He washed us in what? In His own blood. Sin, as the hymn says, had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. Sin always leaves a stain. But it doesn't just leave a stain upon the physical body. It leaves a stain upon the soul. Sin will separate you from an eternity with Christ. And it is His blood. It is His love. Not only did He love, but He washed us in His own blood. Remove the guilt and the wages of sin. Took the stain away. Folks, you realize tonight there is nothing in this world, eternally or temporally, that can remove the stain of sin other than the blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, I was reading part of Spurgeon's sermon regarding this and he said, this, this for John must have been quite the doxology when he's writing this. Remember, these writers, when they wrote, they, didn't, they wrote under the inspiration, but they didn't just write as robots. And as he's penning this, uh, Spurgeon, uh, and again, maybe he was, he was just thinking it out, but he said, imagine what John must have been thinking as he's writing these words, being reminded yet again of his own redemption.'" You know, remember verse 3 says, blessed is he who reads and hears and keeps the prophecy of this book. You know what happens every time we read the scriptures? It ought to lead us to a time of praise. And it ought to lead us to a time of doxology. It ought to lead us to a time when we think it was his everlasting love that pursued me and, com- and apprehended me. And he washed me from the guilt of my sin. And He did it with His own blood. I think about Christ's willingness to shed His own blood, to redeem us, to ransom us, to pardon us from our sin. A doxology, folks, is that which gives glory to God alone. There is no doxology to man. There is no doxology to Another person. The doxology is when we give glory to Christ. And again, I mentioned the Apostle Paul. Through many of his epistles, you see him breaking out in times of a doxology. Where he's overcome with what he's writing. He's overcome with what he's thinking about. And the price that was paid, the price that Christ paid, was the only satisfaction that was sufficient for God's justice, God's holiness. I remember in our study in the book of Hebrews, back in, I thought of this verse, Hebrews 9 14. And of course, we covered this some time ago. How much more, it says, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience? From dead works to serve the living God. And you'll recall that was a question. How much more should Christ's blood purge you from thinking that dead works could save you? The writer in Hebrews, of course, was laying out the implications of what Christ's sacrifice meant for believers. Remember, those priestly sacrifice only cleanse the flesh. But what Jesus Christ, through His shed blood, what He cleansed, He purges the conscience that's filled with the guilt of sin. Even our conscience is cleansed from sin. This is the beauty of what John's writing about unto Him that loved us. And then notice this last phrase we'll cover for tonight. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Uh, this is uh, always one of those phrases. What does it mean he's made us kings and he's made us priests? Well, he's, of course, he's justified us. He's sanctified us. Uh, he, he's, he, is, he has given us in this spiritual sense. He's given us the kingdom. Remember, even Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. We are now part of the kingdom of, of God. And it's all for the honor and the glory of God himself. To be made priest means we have been given access to God. We've been enabled to enter into the holy of the holies. To offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable. Acceptable through God. Acceptable to God, rather, through Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 1 tells us it is our reasonable service. It is our reasonable service to offer ourselves... That's part of this priesthood. That's that's part of, uh, of, 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 of what John has in mind here. And even Paul, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This priesthood, it ought to be something that brings us to offer the sacrifice of praise. That's again what a doxology is. Again, we haven't covered this verse, but we're coming to it this Sunday. Hebrews thirteen fifteen tells us this, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Folks, every believer tonight ought to have a doxology of praise on their lips. Jesus Christ's faithfulness Not only His faithfulness in going to the cross and washing and cleansing us from our sins, but being the faithful witness to all the eternal counsel of God. He will never deceive us. He will never lead us astray. Everything He has done and will will do is true. Peter expanded upon this priesthood when... He announced it to the people of God. We are a royal priesthood and a peculiar people. But John, as he says unto him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever thought about the reality that unless God gave us that, unless God gave us his character, we would not offer glory and praise to god you see being partakers of his kingdom being made kings and priests through the washing and the shedding of christ's precious blood we have now been given the character that is now able to offer a doxology to offer and give god glory and recognize his dominion forever and ever the word amen, is, it's that idea of stop and think and consider what this is. So be it. This is true. All of our praise, all of our honor, and every one of our acknowledgments that we pay ought to be ascribed to God alone. He is worthy. He is our faithful witness. Again, as we study this great book, We continually have to keep our eyes on Christ's revelation, on his testimony, and this faithful witness, the truth of who he is, will have to be at the very center of everything that we do. I mentioned to you as I was reading through one of Spurgeon's sermons on this, I want to finish with a quote that he wrote about this. And again, uh, these, these quotes I'm sharing with you tonight, I know they're not inspired scripture. They're not a replacement for these verses, but I think they're very helpful and encouraging. Spurgeon said this, he said, John had hardly begun to deliver his message to the seven churches. He had hardly given his name and stated from whom the message came when he felt that he must lift up his heart in a joyful doxology. The very mention of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth fired his heart. He could not sit down coolly to write even what the Spirit of God dictated. He must rise. He must fall upon his knees. He must bless and magnify and adore the Lord Jesus. I like what he says here. This text is just the upward burst of a great geyser of devotion. John's spirit had been quiet for a while. But all of a sudden, the stream of his love to Jesus leaps forth like a fountain, rising so high that it would seem to reach heaven itself with its sparkling column of crystal love. You don't hear many people talk about Revelation containing doxologies. Normally, doxologies are reserved for the very last words of a book. What's fascinating here is beginning with Jesus Christ as his faithful witness, there's a doxology at the beginning of the book. John breaks out into praise before we even get to the end of the story. Folks, there is so much to thank the Lord for. And if you have been loved and washed by Jesus Christ, you certainly have the fruit of thanksgiving and praise upon your lips. I hope tonight that that's exactly what you can say, is that Jesus Christ, He is the faithful witness. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, how fitting it is to end this Wednesday evening gathering in a spirit and a mind that is centered upon a doxology to the praise and the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ for all he has done. Lord, thank you that he is a faithful witness that will never deceive, never lead us astray. His testimony is always true. He bore record of himself that his words are true. Lord, if you have opened the eyes to see and to hear Lord, may these truths lead us to joyful praise. Father, we thank you for this journey that this book is going to take us on. The Lord, I could not think of a more fitting way to begin this journey than to think about how praiseworthy our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. All glory and honor and praise He is indeed worthy of. The Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Lord, may we leave here in a few moments with words of joy and words of praise on our lips. May we think upon this great doxology, and may we be known for giving praise and glory and honor to our Lord. We thank you for these things, and it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.